0: So we're continuing our study of becoming family. This is the last week that we're going to be looking at this particular topic. And then next week, we start awkward family photos. Now, if you've not picked up your devotional guide out in the lobby today, there's a table. Pastor David and myself have written about six weeks worth of devotionals leading up to Easter Sunday. So I'd encourage you to go pick one of those up. You can tell the difference between mine and his because he's a much better writer than I am. But we do want everybody to get one of those. I also just received word this morning that Pastor David's wife, Janet, has come down with the flu on their vacation in Texas. And in my very encouraging way, I texted him and said, well, don't worry, I'm sure you'll get it in a few days because as you get older, your immunities go down. (laughs) He responded, oh, don't worry, your amenities as a young adult are much worse than mine. So that was his response. So he's very witty like that. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 this morning looking at a family conflict now if I were to ask you this morning how many of you have ever been embarrassed by something that your parents did to you I'm gonna look in this general direction first okay at some point there's just something that happens to us as parents we don't know any better we are just we make these mistakes and we embarrass our children I'm learning this, even though my son's only four and my daughter is two and three months now, I'm already learning how easy it is for parents to embarrass their children. I'll never forget my mother in the fall of 2000, shortly after Y2K, all right, I'm in ninth grade, I was in Algebra 1. Now, my Algebra 1 teacher was a very nice-looking lady, okay, okay? So me and my buddies, we looked forward every day to Algebra 1. Well, my parents went to the open house where they walk through your schedule and they meet all your teachers. And my mother happened to mention to my teacher that I had a crush on her. Now, this would have been fine if I was 5 or 6. But when you're 14, and this happens like the first month of school, you have to walk into class every single day with the understanding that your teacher is aware that you like her, okay? Now, luckily for my instance, she went on maternity leave later that year, and so I didn't have to worry about it anymore. But parents do embarrassing things to their children all the time. And what we're going to find today in our story is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, the mother of James and John goes before Jesus and does something highly embarrassing, So it's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along or if you want to look on your phone as well. Beginning in verse 20, this is what Matthew tells us. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now this is Jesus that she's talking to. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine... Are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom... It has been prepared by my Father. And when the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's interesting about Matthew's account is in Matthew's account, the mother of James and John goes before Jesus to present this request. But if you look at the way Mark tells the story, James and John go to Jesus themselves. So there's a little bit of mystery here. Why does Matthew choose to throw the mother under the bus instead of James and John? There's a lot of theories out there, but one is that Matthew is actually trying to protect the reputation of James and John. Now keep in mind this is just a theory. We don't have any evidence of this, but Matthew, who is a disciple himself, perhaps cared more about the light that James and John were in than maybe Mark did. Mark is not a disciple. He is a follower of Christ, but he's not one of the twelve. So perhaps this is the reason why. We don't know for sure why this is, but for whatever reason, Matthew paints the mother of James and John as the one going to Jesus with this request. And the text tells us that she kneels before Jesus... So she's not doing this in an irreverent way or a disrespectful way. The word for kneel here is the same word that we use for worship in the New Testament. So she's coming before Jesus in a very respectful way, asking him to put her two sons at his right and his left. And Jesus responds respectfully back to her. He says, what do you want? Okay, so Jesus is not ignoring her. He's listening to her question very intently. But she comes before him asking for something that she doesn't really realize what she's asking for. You see, you and I, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we all have to examine the requests that we bring before him. In this particular instance, the mother of James and John was primarily concerned with her own two children. So we look at the story, okay, and we see James and John, and we say, how could these two men ask something like this of Jesus? But the reality is, you and I know what happens on this side of the story. In the moment, when James and John bring this request to Jesus, they're only looking out for their best interest, which I know Self-preservation is something that you and I wrestle with on a daily basis. In our sinful flesh we are always looking out for number one. One commentator wrote that the obsession that we have with status and self-preservation is something that has to be unlearned as followers of Christ. No one had to teach me No one had to teach you how to be primarily concerned with your own interests. We all want to be the best looking, hardest working, most successful person in the room. We're wired that way, in our flesh. So let's cut the mother of James and John a little slack here. Looking out for her children is the very same thing that many of us do all the time with our own. But the only way to overcome this sense of self-preservation, this sense of focusing on ourselves, is to bring requests before the Lord on behalf of other people. It's what you and I call intercessory prayer. As Andrew began our service today praying for the nation of Zimbabwe, every single week during our pastoral prayer time, We're going to be focusing on a different nation, a different country of the world. Now, we started today with Zimbabwe because we have connections there. We have relationships with people on the ground there. But every single week, a different country is going to be talked about. Because the only way to get ourselves to stop focusing on us is to think about the nations, to pray for people in Zimbabwe, Afghanistan, Iran, Belgium, you name it, every single week, we're going to bring to you requests from different parts of the world, ways we can pray for the governments of these nations, for the peoples of these nations, for the unreached people groups, those that don't know Jesus. Because the more we have a global perspective as we pray, the less likely we are to focus on ourselves. Now, are we supposed to bring our requests on our behalf to the Lord? Absolutely. Jesus teaches very clearly that he carries our own personal burdens. So you should absolutely bring every request on behalf of yourself to the Lord. But as we pray for other people, God illuminates our hearts and our minds, and he expands our thinking outside of our own self to those outside the walls of this church, into our city, and around the world. The mother of James and John could not see past her immediate circumstance. But as we keep moving in the story, what we see is that God sees the bigger picture. You know, oftentimes when you and I are praying for things in our life, we always pray that we want God's will to be done. But a lot of times, what we mean is we want God's will to be done the way I want it to happen. Now, this is just human nature, okay? We're all guilty of this. When the mother of James and John comes before Jesus, she only sees this part of the story, but Jesus sees the entire picture. She says to him, Lord, put my sons at your right and left. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You see, James and John probably wanted the, the fame and the honor and the prestige of sitting next to Jesus in heaven. But I guarantee you, they didn't want the responsibility that comes with it. And they didn't grasp the magnitude of what their mother was asking on their behalf to carry the burdens of the entire world would be overwhelming for them. So when we pray and we ask that God's will be done, God's will might not be done in the way that you and I want it to happen. If we think through the rest of this story, when Jesus asks them, are you ready to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for blessing. So James and John might have been thinking, oh yeah, we'll drink that cup. Bring me the blessings. But did you know that blessings in the Old Testament, it's not always associated with the cup. Sometimes the cup is associated with suffering. In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Lamentations, we find this theme where drinking of the cup means that you will, in fact, suffer. So Jesus tells them, oh, you're going to drink my cup. You know what happens to James? In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he's killed by Herod. Later on, we know that John is exiled on the island of Patmos, And would we say that these men were in the center of God's will? They followed after him. They were obedient to him. And yet God still brought suffering into their life. So we need to be careful that we don't always associate suffering with disobedience to God. Let's look at Paul himself as he moves from city to city town to town, being obedient to what God had called him to do, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to all these different nations, what happens to him along the way? He gets robbed. He gets beaten. He gets imprisoned. He gets stoned. But he was being obedient to what God had for him. Just like James and John would later drink the cup. You and I at some point in our life will drink the cup of suffering. Probably not to the extent that James and John did. But what I want us to see is suffering can be a gift from God to draw us closer to himself. Many of you this morning would say that some of the Sweetest times you have had with the Lord have been during periods of intense suffering or intense trial. Whether it be the loss of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, God works in us through our suffering. He worked through Paul. He worked through James. He worked through John. He worked through Peter. All people that suffered for the cause of Jesus Christ. In our suffering, all we see is the here and now. But what God sees is the entire picture of your life. And he can use those encounters, those situations, to draw you closer to himself. And I know when I say God will use you in your suffering, you're thinking that's very cliche. That's exactly what I would expect a preacher to say. But the reality is, it's not cliche, it's biblical. Romans 8.28, we know that God works together for all things, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We know that God works in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, I'm not belittling what you're experiencing at all. I don't want to downplay what you're experiencing, the suffering that might be in your life, but I want you to take hold of the fact that God is using it to draw you closer to him. And one day, when you look back on it, you will see that God brought you closer to himself through that process. God sees the big picture. But you also know that when you serve other people, it helps your relationships. Now, here's the deal. James and John go to Jesus, okay, almost secretly. The text kind of implies this, that they kind of go away from the other ten and they go up to Jesus and they say, looking around, hey, put me at your right and your left. What does Matthew tell us? The other ten are indignant at James and John for doing this. Because the implication here is that James and John, whether they meant to or not, kind of threw the other ten out of the way in order to make sure that they were taken care of. When you focus on yourself first, when you talk about yourself and your needs and your dreams, and you never stop to worry about anybody else, it can be very, very damaging to your relationships. But here's the deal, when you put other people ahead of yourself, when you serve other people, you become more and more like Jesus. Every time you choose to put someone else's needs above your own, you're imitating, the way of your savior i went to some parades over the weekend with my family friday night my wife dropped me off i had my ladder i had my wagon i was walking down the street where we normally stand and it was full and i was like this is not good because we had a lot of people coming i thought i got there early enough i didn't and this man walks up to me and he says hey uh, you know i've got these saved but why don't you move here we have a tent over here where you can get waters and Juice for your kids. We've got some food coming. How many spots do you need? Do you have more people coming? And just going above and beyond what he needed to do for me. I've never met him in my life. I have no idea if he's a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know. But I do know one thing. That night, as he served me and my family, he made a profound difference. And everybody that came up that was standing with us, said, how did you get this great spot? And I said, I have no idea why. But this guy just completely gave it all up so that we could stand right here. When you serve other people, it goes against the grain of everything that you and I have been taught since we were this high. The goal is to have people working for you. People waiting on you, hand and foot. So you want to go to school, you want to make the most money, have the biggest house, drive the fanciest car so people can wait on you. This is what we've been taught. But Jesus blows all this out of the water. He says, that's wrong. The goal is for you to wait on others. It's for you to serve others. So whatever influence, whatever status, whatever money you have, you don't spend it on yourself, you give it away to serve other people. I would love for a professional athlete who signed a $200 million contract to stand before the podium and say, you know what, I don't need any of this money. I'm going to give it away. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now that would get a lot of people thinking. There have been some that have done that, so don't make a blanket statement about all athletes here some do that but when we serve other people when we put our own needs to the side it helps our relationships many of us have trouble turning the conversation to spiritual things let me tell you when you begin serving other people they take notice of it and they will ask you why are you doing this there's your open door Because Jesus commands me to serve other people. And because he served me, I'm going to serve you. That right there is a gospel conversation. I just finished reading a book not long ago called Shoe Dog. It's the book written by Phil Knight himself, who is the founder and the former chairman of Nike. Okay? He wrote this book himself about how he started the company, all the successes and failures that he endured in the early days. Did you know that Phil Knight actually started in Hawaii, okay, selling encyclopedias door to door to pay his rent so that he could be a beach bum? He just wanted to surf. So he moved to Hawaii, and he sold encyclopedias. And he says in the book that he was absolutely horrible at it. Nobody wanted to buy an encyclopedia from him. But he says later in the book, when he would go to these parking lots and sell these shoes out of the trunk of his car to these high school coaches after their track meets, he was absolutely mopping up on sales. And he couldn't figure out why. Why can I sell these shoes out of the trunk of my car and not encyclopedias door-to-door in Hawaii? And here's the principle that he brings up in the book. He says, when you believe in the product you're selling, it's not a chore. You genuinely want to do it. See, he had no passion, no motivation, no fulfillment whatsoever from selling encyclopedias that nobody wanted to read. But when he began selling a product that he believed in, that he had put blood, sweat, and tears into, it wasn't even a job anymore. It was just doing what he loved to do. So when we talk with people about Jesus, do we believe in the product that we're selling? Now I realize Jesus is not a product. But do we believe that he gives us purpose and motivation and fulfillment? And if we do, then it shouldn't be a chore, should it? But we all struggle with it. I struggle with it. Finding a way to talk about Jesus in a way that makes me excited and passionate about what he's doing in my life. What that book is teaching me to examine in my own life is do I believe in the product that I'm selling? And if we do, God will change people's hearts, and they will come to know him as Lord and Savior. You also need to realize that humility will set you apart for gospel work. Humility will set you apart for the work of the gospel. The whole point of this story is for Jesus at the very end to gather his disciples before him and tell them, Listen, you have got to learn that the secret ingredient to everything that you and I do is to put other people above ourselves. This is counterculture. We've already said this goes against everything you and I have been taught to believe. I found a quote by Francis Schaeffer. He's a Christian writer from the 20th century. He wrote a book entitled The Church at the End of the 20th Century. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you this book was written in 1970. Okay? So when you see this quote here in a moment, you're going to understand how it could have been written in 1970. Here's what he says. I want to read this to you. The Bible says we are to give out Cups of cold water. How many have we ever given out to the long haired and barefooted boys? Now, do you understand 1970? Who's he talking about here? Hippies, okay? So, keep going. Don't try to get your church to begin if you haven't begun yourself. Do you talk against the affluent society? That's another thing we evangelicals are now good at. We are against the affluent society. How many times have you risked your share in that society, getting nicked and scratched in the name of Jesus Christ? How many times have you risked breaking the springs in your car, crowding children in to take them somewhere? Don't talk about being against the affluent society unless you put that share of the affluent society, which is your horde, on the line. When I read this, Immediate punch in the gut. Because we can talk and talk and talk about Jesus. I can stand up here before you and preach about Jesus. But only I know if I'm being obedient to what he actually tells me to do. he brings his disciples around and he lets them know the reason I'm telling you to serve other people is because I'm about to serve you ultimately by putting my life on the line for you. Jesus was taken, beaten, spit on, whipped, stabbed in his side, nailed to a cross he was literally serving his disciples and everyone else until the moment upon which he breathed his last breath. So what that means for you and I is, there never comes a point in time where we stop serving other people. If Jesus can serve until his death, you and I can serve Until we die. The family conflict. That we find here. Is settled. When Jesus says. I came to give my life. As a ransom for many. You having any problems. In your relationships with people. Right now. Let me give you a quick remedy. Begin serving them. Don't focus on what they've done to you. Begin serving them. And just see if God works through that. I know many of you in here shop at Amazon. Raise your hand if you've ever purchased something off of Amazon before. Almost 100% of people now are using Amazon for purchases. We get diapers off there. You can even get groceries there now. There's no need to ever leave your house. It can all be done on Amazon. Well, about a month ago, Amazon opened up what they call Amazon Go, their first store. And they claimed that you could wait in no line, that you could go in, get exactly what you needed, there weren't going to be any cashiers, there should be no wait whatsoever, go in, get what you need, and then leave. This is what Amazon was claiming would happen. Well, I'm sure many of you read the articles and saw pictures. But the very first day Amazon opened, what do we see? A line out the door and around the corner. People, loyal Amazon people were frustrated beyond belief. Amazon, you told us you were going to deliver on this promise, and look at this line I'm standing in. Article after article, picture after picture on Facebook, Twitter. It was a big disaster. Now, I love Amazon. Why am I sharing this with you? Here's the deal. It didn't matter everything that Amazon said, because when it was time to open up shop, they did not deliver On the promise. In other words. You and I can talk up a good game. We can talk all day long about serving other people. We can talk about loving those that are not like us. We can talk about praying for those. Who are our enemies. But if we don't actually do it. We're just like Amazon. We must learn to match what we say about Jesus with the way we behave. And when those don't mesh together, we turn people off to the gospel. I don't want to be Amazon. I want to be a person who walks the walk and talks the talk. And if you will go out, not only talk about serving other people, but actually do it, God will work in your relationships. And people will come to faith in Christ because what they see you doing goes against everything else that they see happening in society. And you will become a radical follower of Jesus Christ. As you leave today, jot down the names of two or three people this week that you can begin serving. And don't talk about doing it. Act on it. And see if God doesn't bless your life and bless theirs in the process. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being the ultimate servant by sending your son Jesus to die for us. God, he didn't just talk about serving us. He delivered on his promise. So Lord, examine our hearts. Convict us. Help us to see the impact and the importance of serving and loving other people where they are. God, we can't do this in our own strength. We will focus on ourselves apart from your spirit working in our life. So continue to speak through us. Speak to us as we study your word. Speak to us in our relationships. Help us to make a difference for you through the way we love and serve other people. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.